Well, church, I want to I start today with a question. I'm actually a little curious about something. For those of you who were here or tuned in or saw the recording of the sermon last week, I'm wondering, did anyone notice any fake news this week? Did anyone see any fake news anywhere? Any, any information that came out and you're like, I don't know about that. I don't know if that's true. Did you see any news reports that were the exact opposite of one another this week? Did you almost but not post anything fake this week? Anyone? Anyone bold enough to admit that they almost but didn't post anything fake this week? Uh, I, by the way, I've almost posted things and then realized, wait a second, let me check that. Let me check that. Um, you know, after the sermon from last week, I, I've kind of had a heightened awareness again. I mean, I was, obviously the week before I was thinking about it a lot as well as I was preparing, and I'm preparing again this week. But last week we were talking about discernment and the age of fake news. But today we're talking about trust in the age of fake news. Because, you know, one of the challenges of the age in which we live where there's so much false information, so much contradictory information, is one, is it's hard to discern what are the lies. But, you know, it also does something inside of us when we're constantly getting this barrage of conflicting messages, messages that sometimes have no basis in reality, messages that sometimes aren't complete, they're partial, they're biased, is that it really creates a challenge inside of us when it's time to trust. I don't know if you've ever had a relationship with someone who lies to you regularly. You might love them, but when they speak, it's hard to to know whether they're telling the truth. It's hard to believe them. And it creates a difficulty in your relationship. But it's the same with you know, the world at large. When the world at large is like that, it's hard to trust the world that you live in. It's hard to be a person of trust. And the thing is, it's really an important flip side of what we talked about last week. Because I want you to consider this. It's very dangerous to believe things that are not true, isn't it? It can lead you in all sorts of bad directions. It can create all sorts of problems in your life. You know, just think of just very simple examples if um, you know if the sign if there's a sign that says turn right for the airport but you actually need to turn left for the airport you're going to miss your flight right or or worse if there was a sign that says you know this bridge holds 800 pounds and the bridge only holds three pounds that's a problem right but it's equally troublesome and problematic if you don't believe things that are true You've heard the story about the the person driving at night and someone waves him down, the bridge is out, the bridge is out. And the guy doesn't believe him and drives right off what is no bridge, right? So not believing the truth is as problematic as believing a lie. So what I'd love to do today is we're going to go back really to the Word and look at what God is inviting us to in regards to trust and how that trust might manifest. But before we do that, I want to do a quick recap of what we talked about last week. Because when I say fake news, I don't want you to have a misunderstanding of what I mean. Because there's people in the world today who use fake news 
and they mean it in a very particular way. And so I'm not saying anything, again, not saying anything political. I'm not siding with the political candidate, a political party, or a, a political position, anything like that. I'm really talking about just these, there's, there's four basic types of things that we encounter on a regular basis that I think fit the category of fake news. So the first one is we get these, you know, snippets of the truth. You know, I might, you might call them the headlines that don't really tell the whole story. It could also be a sound bite. It could be a short video clip. I shared a couple of examples last week. But, you know, we always see on, online, on the news, you see a clip of someone saying something, and it sounds horrible. Or it sounds like the kind of thing that if they were saying that, then you, you would hate them. And then later, you might do some research and look it up on YouTube or somewhere, and you find the whole clip, and you realize they weren't really saying at all what it sounded like they were saying in the short clip. You've experienced that? You know, the, the one I shared last week is that churches emerge as a major source of coronavirus cases. That's a headline from the New York Times. And the article, the person who wrote the article said there were 650 cases out of three and a half million that were linked to churches. So the content is true, but the headline is misleading. Churches aren't a major source. We have to be careful, right? We're wearing masks. We're using the protocols. But the headline is misleading. You know, then there's the type of information. It sounds like the truth, but it's actually compiled of a bunch of lies, right? And, and it's just those, sometimes it's just outright lies. Sometimes it's conspiracy theories. It's all kinds of information out there that at first, at first glance it might seem true, but it's actually not true at all. And then there's the type of fake news that is just, in, it's just bias. It's just a slant. Someone is saying, you know, here's what happened from my perspective and pushing their perspective harder than they're pushing the facts and harder than they're pushing the information. You know, we don't have this mentality anymore, but a long, 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 long time ago, before some of you were even born, there was something called the nightly news on network television, and that was all the news you got on TV. And there was this guy named Walter Cronkite, and he would tell the people the news, and he would just tell them the news. And he would say, what did he say? That's the way it was, as if that were the perspective on the news, right? And now you get a million perspectives on the news, but all from a different bias. And so we need to be alert to this. And then finally, uh, you can't see it back there, but this idea of all these different ways that we hear things, but with all sorts of logical fallacies in them. And I read last week a couple of these, the straw man fallacy, where you give a weak version of your opponent's position and then you tear it apart. But you haven't given their true position. You gave an exaggerated or a false view of their position. Uh, there's the slippery slope fallacy. Well, because something can happen doesn't mean it will happen. So that's not really a good argument. All these different types, and we see them all the time. And then finally, we ended with, what are five things we can do to try to limit or minimize falling for this fake news. Well, we, we want to seek the Lord first. You know, I love um, 
it wasn't necessarily fake news, but as Amanda was sharing, she was struggling with these things, like challenges she's facing, anxieties that she has, the, the messages of the world are coming against her, and what does she do? She goes and asks the Lord for a message, right? She's asking for the Lord to speak truth into her moment. Did you know that every single one of you can do that with God? You can ask God to speak truth into the moment that you're in. And very often you'll find that you hear a message from the Lord and it's sometimes so far away from what you would have expected. You know, it's not, it's not this manufactured thing where you just give yourself the answer you wanted. By the way, if you're listening to the Lord and you always get the answer you want, I might suggest that you listen a little harder. Because very often the Lord doesn't give you the answer you want. He gives you a better answer. Second thing we do is we test the prophets. The Bible tells us to test the prophets. Well, we're not necessarily talking about just prophets, but, you know, who are these people giving information? What are they saying? Is it true? Does it lead to peace or does it lead to anxiety? Does it lead to love or does it lead to bitterness? You know, the Lord says, even if a prophet tells you something that's true and it comes to pass, if they, if they lead you away from the Lord, they're not a true prophet. You know, and that's kind of a general principle that we can apply in all areas of life. Number three, follow the money. Follow uh, where, who's benefiting from this. You know, we can discern a little bit about whether the message is likely to be true by whether it benefits someone. You know, the truth often benefits both sides. Have you ever noticed that? And by the way, life is not a zero-sum game. If you acknowledge the truth, even if it weakens your position and strengthens your opponent's position, uh, whether we're talking about politics or just an argument you're having in, in the back seat of the car or maybe in the front seat of the car, <laughs> maybe it's the adults, maybe it's the kids, it's better to pursue the truth, even if it helps your opponent. Uh, but if it's always benefiting you or always benefiting your cause or always benefiting your political perspective, then, hey, watch out. Be careful. That's an alert to us. Number four, do the work. Sometimes we have to do some research. The Internet has made research a lot easier and a lot harder at the same time. You can access anything, but you can access anything. You know, do you see what I'm saying? You can get a lot of information, but it's hard to know whether it's good because there's no gatekeeper to the internet. It's just a wide open access, unfettered access. And then the fifth one, use your brain. Give it the smell test, use logic. Does this make sense? And the more you do the first four things, the more you'll be able to do the last one well. You'll be able to do that smell test a lot better uh, once you consistently do the first four. Well, that's just a recap from last week. So we're kind of trying to say, what is the problem here? And we looked a little bit about why it was a problem. And then we looked at some pieces of a solution. And we looked at the scripture and kind of came up with these five. So that's just a recap. If you want more of that and you weren't here last week, check it out. It's online on our website. It's on our YouTube channel. It's on our Facebook. But so now the question is, where do we go from here? And, and by the way, uh, did anyone last week... Or just in general, did you kind of walk away feeling like, oh, this is a big burden? It's a big burden to live in a world where we're getting fed all this information that's conflicting. 
you know, does anyone, again, like, you know, the news used to be somebody telling us, here's the news. And then we took it, and we had the news. And you didn't have to do a lot of figuring out. And by the way, the, the news looked a lot different back then and sounded a lot different. It was written a lot differently. You know, it was actually intentionally written with less bias. Uh, but we always do have a bias, and that's impossible to get away from. But, uh, you know, even thinking about, do you remember uh, either, like when I was a kid, there was this thing called the food pyramid. Have you young people even heard of the food pyramid? Have you guys heard of the food pyramid? So when I was little, it was this pyramid, and it showed you what you should eat, and the pyramid helped you to know how much you should eat of each thing. Do you know what they told you to eat the absolute most of? Bread, pasta, carbs, grain. Almost every diet now tells you don't eat too much grain, don't eat too much wheat, don't eat too much corn. You know, it's like chill out on that stuff. And then it was like fruits and vegetables, and then it was meat at the top. Now, if you're on, a, if you're on like the Atkins diet, your meat's on the bottom and your, and your grain's on the top. You know, it's just... But you know what? They told us that's how we should eat, and we didn't worry about it. Now, how many types of diets can you choose from? Hundreds. How do you know which one's right? You don't. <laughs> so there's this, I think, there's this anxiety that builds in us where we're always having to make a constant number of, de- like, un- innumerable decisions. And we get this decision fatigue. Does anyone get decision fatigue? You know, again, if you, if, if you go back in time and walk into a grocery store and there's five cereals, and now you walk into a grocery store and there's, I don't know, 50 cereals on the aisle, and if you go to another store, there's a different group of options for cereal. It's, it can be overwhelming when you have to make all these choices all the time. And it gets harder when it's medical, right? Or when it's about economy. You know, who, whose economic system works better? It's such a tough, tough thing to discern. You know? Whose who's, uh, monetary policy works better? Whose prison and, and um, law enforcement policy works better? And again, it's not between two options here, because sometimes we think it is, but it's really among 15 different options. It's hard to know. It's just difficult. And it creates this level of anxiety. And I think for, for me, and I imagine for a lot of you, you end up in a situation where you just kind of say, I just, I just give up. I just, I'm just not going to trust any diet. I'm just going to eat what I want. I'm not going to trust any dental recommendations. I'm just going to grab the toothpaste I like. <laughs> you know, and there's from silly examples to serious examples. Right? I, I'm going to just stop listening to alternate views, and I'm just going to listen only to the view they already have because I'm tired of trying to discern whether something is better than what I have. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's not. I mean, think about it this way. Which religion is true? Well, there's too many of them, so I give up. I'm just not going to have a religion. Which of these gods that everyone talks about is real? 
Well, I'll just be agnostic. And I say, I don't know if there's a God. And if there is, I don't know which one to follow. So I'm just going to leave it be. That has eternal consequences. You know? But the thing is, there's, the fact is that you and I actually trust things and trust people and trust ideas all the time. You know, last week we were, uh, a week and a half ago, we were in Maine. And in Maine, there's all of these little two-lane highways. And they twist and turn and go up and down. And the speed limit is 60 miles an hour on some of them in some places. And, you know, you, you, especially when you're driving at night, and it just feels a little odd when you're zooming around a curve and over a hill, and this car is going the other way. And for the most part, I never really think about, huh, I wonder if they will turn their wheel and crash into us. I don't think about that. I just trust that this other human being is not going to cross over into my lane and create a head-on collision where we're both going 60 miles an hour. And for the most part, they don't. <laughs> but you do know that that sometimes happens, right? Sometimes people have head-on collisions for all sorts of reasons. They've been drinking. Uh, they had, I mean, it, people have had strokes and gotten into accidents. People have checked a text and gotten in a head-on collision. People do all sorts of things to create head-on collisions. But why do you not worry about that? Does anyone worry about that every single time they drive? No, I mean, not, you can't function if you're always worrying about that. How do you know that the person walking by you in the hall isn't going to stab you? It happens, but you can't worry about it all the time. You know, we do have this limit to how much we can worry about and how much we can distrust as well as how much we can trust. But the sociologists and even um, uh, social scientists of different stripes have, have seen through experimentation that by and large, humans are incredibly trusting. Incredibly trusting. Our natural default programming is to trust. And for the most part, you have to be proven that you can't trust someone before you distrust them and not the other way around. Now, if you're a person who's been treated with falsehoods over and over in your life by a lot of different people, that will shift. But for the most part, that's our default. I read this incredible book uh, that was about this topic, and it was talking about Bernie Madoff. You guys remember Bernie Madoff? He stole millions and millions of dollars from people in this Ponzi scheme. And, you know, the question was, was Bernie Madoff a brilliant liar, or were these people particularly gullible? And so some researchers set out to determine that. They looked at video of Bernie. They looked at the writing of Bernie. They talked to people who had personal interactions with Bernie. And then they interviewed people who were taken in by his scheme. And they found two interesting things. Bernie Madoff was not a particularly good liar. And the people who fell for his scheme were not particularly gullible. Basically, no one believed that he was doing these horrible things. And, and the... The fact is that there was someone who had determined what he was doing 
years before he finally got caught. They gave their information to the police and to the security exchange, and no one believed it. After all the evidence was in front of them, they still didn't believe it. We can be like that sometimes. We have the truth right in front of us, and we let me give you an example from the scripture. You guys remember there was, there was this guy named Abraham in the Old Testament? <laughs> Abraham was the guy that, that um, God called to become the father of this great nation that is Israel, that became Israel. And in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram. He's in Ur, and God calls him out of Ur to go into um, Canaan which is where eventually Israel is. He says, I'm going to take you to a new place, and I'm going to give you a new land. I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to give you this promise. He says, I promise to bless you, and I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you, but I'll use you to be a blessing to all the nations on the earth, and your, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now, this is a man who had no children, right? He had no, he was nothing special. He was apparently pretty wealthy because he had a lot of cattle and he had a lot of people with him. But he wasn't particularly special. But God called him for this great purpose. And then what happens is uh, it, later, God reminds him of his promise. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, God renews the covenant that he had made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where he says, I'm going to bless you, bless you to be a blessing, and make you a great nation. And this is what it says, verse 1 of chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. It says, The word of the Lord came to Abram, at that time his name was Abram, in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. So this was someone who lived in his camp, one of the people that was following him. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall be your offspring. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This famous passage that Paul talks about in Romans 4, that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And then what the Lord does is he invites Abraham to make a covenant. A covenant is a special type of promise, a special type of commitment, where two people come into agreement with one another in such a way that they actually become family. And they do it before God. So marriage is a covenant. Two people who are not family form a family in the eyes of God. Adoption is a covenant. When God makes his covenant with us through Jesus Christ, he adopts us as his sons and daughters. He makes us a part of his family. When God made a covenant with David, he said, today I've become your father and you've become my son. You know, so this is, this is the kind of, 
of promise. It's so, it's so thick that there's nothing that can separate it because you're family now. And what Abraham does is Abraham cuts up these offerings and the traditional way of doing a covenant is that you would cut these animals in half, you put them on both sides, both people would walk through the broken animals and they were saying, may this be done to me if I break this covenant. By the way, even today in a wedding, the husband and wife walk down an aisle with the two sides of the community, like you know how you have the husband's family on this side and the wife's family on this side? And they walk down the aisle. They've broken the community in two. May this be done to us if we break this commitment of marriage. It's that same sign. But what God does is God puts Abraham to sleep. And God alone walks through these pieces. So what he says is, I'm going to be the one guaranteeing that this covenant is never broken. Now, let me just ask you this. Do you notice how calmly Abraham speaks to God? Imagine God came to you and audibly said, I'm going to give you incredible blessing. I'm going to make you a great person. I'm going to make you rich. I'm going to make you famous. I'm going to save the world through you. And you say, God, how can I know this to be true? And he goes through this elaborate process to show that there's nothing that can be done to make this not happen. Would you believe it? You're just like, oh, God's here. God's come to talk to me. And he's saying all these things. Would you believe it? Abraham believes, right? Abraham believes. But here's the thing. Abraham still doesn't have a son. So what does he do? He says, well, God told me I'm going to have a son, so I need to make this happen. And you know how sons are made. So his wife has a servant, and she says, Sleep with my servant so you can have a son, so you can have an heir, so that God's promises can become true. You see, there's a type of believing God's promises where you try to make them happen, and there's a type of believing God's promises where you trust him to make them happen. So Abraham has this son, Ishmael, and God comes back to him. And God's, you know, I don't know if he's upset, but... He kind of takes Abraham to task. He says, I told you you were going to have a son, but you're going to have a son with your wife, Sarah. And the way he does this, chapter 18, is God sends three visitors, three angels, to come and tell Abraham that he's going to have a son with his wife, Sarah. The problem is, Abraham, by this time, is very old. (laughs) He's way past the age of having children, and so is Sarah. So these three angels come, and he gets them some water, and he even gets them some food, and he brings them some milk. And they say, where is your wife, Sarah? This is verse 9 of Genesis 18. She's there in the tent, he said. And one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind them. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? So does she believe? She's kind of incredulous. She's like, Hey, this sounds like fake news. (laughs) 
This doesn't sound true. This can't be real. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Well, I really have a child? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the point of time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But God said, Yes, you did laugh. You can't lie to God. <laughs> you can. She did it. <laughs> you can't do it successfully. So here's the story. Abraham has no heir. God tells him, you're going to have an heir. He has an heir with another woman who's not his wife. God says, no, you're going to have an heir with your wife, and it's going to be by this time next year. And you have to realize at this point, Abraham has a decision to make. And so does Sarah. He's old. He's in his 90s. She's 90 years old. She can't have kids. God says, you're going to have a kid. Now, in the ancient world, in the ancient Middle Eastern world, in the ancient Middle Eastern Bedouin nomadic world, a camp like Abraham's would have been set up with multiple tents. And probably in the center of the tent would be Abraham's tent. And then next to it somewhere would be Sarah's tent. And they would each have their own tent. And all the people would have their own tents. And Abraham would sleep in his tent and Sarah would sleep in her tent. So you just have to imagine the, the social impact of Abraham and Sarah trying to follow through on the promise of God here. So night after night, the people are used to seeing Abraham go into his tent and Sarah go into her tent. And then all of a sudden, after these three visitors come, people are probably wondering, why is Abraham going to Sarah's tent? Or why is Sarah going to Abraham's tent? It reminds me a little bit of Noah's Ark, where God tells Noah to build this ark in the middle of the desert. I don't know if it's a desert, not near an ocean. And people think, you're crazy. I imagine there's people in Abraham's camp who are thinking, you're crazy, Abraham. You really think you're going to have a son with Sarah? Do you realize how old you are? But Abraham believed. It was hard to believe, but he believed. You know, there's another story in the Bible where it's hard to believe God. Someone has a hard time believing God. And I won't read the whole thing to you, but it's in Judges chapter 6. It's about a man named Gideon. By the way, Abraham does have a son. He names him Isaac. Isaac's the father of Jacob. Jacob's the father of the 12 uh, patriarchs of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And out of one of those tribes comes King David. And through King David's line comes Jesus. So God indeed does bless the world through Abraham. He does indeed make him a great nation. And not just the father of Israel. He's the father of the church. He's the father of us all, all who have faith in God. There's another story, though, in Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6 is about a man named Gideon. You guys heard of Gideon? Gideon is a brave warrior who conquers Israel's enemies in the name of God, except that he's not. Gideon is kind of like a coward, scaredy cat, who has a hard time trusting in the Lord. When God comes to Gideon, do you know what he's doing? 
he's threshing wheat in a vine press. So the way you thresh wheat, wheat has both the seed and also the husk, and you want to get the husk away from the seed. So you, you throw it up in the air, and the wind blows, and all the chaff is blown away, and the seed falls to the ground, and you don't have to pick them all off by hand. The, the wind does it for you. Do you know what a wine press is? A wine press is a deep, usually in that point, stone vat where you stomp on the grapes so that the juice can flow out. The thing is, when you're in a vat, there's no wind. But Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press because he's afraid that the enemies of Israel will steal his wheat. And for good reason, because they have been doing that. So here's the thing. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press, and the angel of the Lord comes to him. And he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Okay, that is the first, that's the first line of this story that sounds like fake news to Gideon. God's calling him a mighty warrior. Does he feel like a mighty warrior? Not at all. He feels scared. He feels weak. He feels impotent. But God says, you are a mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon responds. This is Judges 6, 13. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did the Lord not bring you up out of Egypt? Hey, what about all those things we heard about of how great our God is? I don't see any of that happening now. Maybe God's not so great, or maybe he doesn't care about us anymore. Maybe his promises aren't true. You ever feel like that? Where are all these miracles that God's supposed to be doing in my life? Why has God abandoned me? The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And now starts this process where Gideon starts to have an extended conversation with God over multiple days and even weeks. And finally, Gideon comes to this place where God is telling him to go fight his enemies, the Midianites. And, and, and Gideon says, Okay, I'm going to believe you. Now, by the way, when God shows up, again, like with Abraham, when God shows up, it's not a question of whether he's talking to God. Gideon's not doubting that. He's doubting whether he can trust God's word. So he says, how can I know that you'll give the Midianites into my hand? And, and he says, can, can we do a little test? And God, I mean, Gideon shears a fleece off a sheep. He says, I'm going to put this fleece out. And I want the dew to make the fleece wet, but leave the ground dry. God says, no problem. So he goes to bed, wakes up, fleece is wet, ground is dry. And then Gideon says, okay, but just to make really sure, I'm going to set it out again tonight, and can you make the ground wet, but the fleece dry? God says, no problem, let's do that. Sure enough, he wakes up, ground's wet, fleece is dry. And then I found this funny little comic. Okay, God, get in here. Let's try this again. Today, if the fleece is dry and a rock is soaked and the ground is merely damp, then that means I can take the Midianites. You know, how many uh, renditions of this can you do? How many tests can you put the Lord to? And you know, what would it look like if someone asked you to do that for them? Might you get a little impatient? Might you get frustrated? Might you get angry? If you're telling someone, I'm going to do this, I don't believe you, prove it. You give them proof. 
Okay, thanks for that proof. How about some more proof? Okay, here's some more proof. I'm still not sure. <laughs> you know, and by the way, he didn't do the third one. That's just a joke. But finally, he goes out and he does exactly what God says he's going to do. So he finally trusts. You know, there was one other person in the Bible that came to mind this week. People who have a hard time trusting. Ever heard of Doubting Thomas? Jesus has died on the cross. He's been resurrected and raised from the dead. He's walking around and he sees the disciples in different places. But for whatever reason, Thomas is never there when Jesus shows up. And the guys tell him, Thomas, you're not going to believe it. Jesus was here. He's alive. He's raised from the dead. And Thomas says, until I can put my finger in that hole in his side and see the scars in his wrists, I'm not going to believe. This is in John chapter 20, the story that we get. So in John 20, lo and behold, Jesus shows up when Thomas is there. And so he comes in and he says, peace be with you. And then Thomas, he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Because you know what? When you first hear that Jesus is alive from the dead, it, found, it sounds like fake news, right? It's too good to be true. This can't be real. He says, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, I think these three stories, the story of Abraham, the story of Gideon, the story of Thomas, they tell us something really important about God and they tell us something really important about ourselves. So about God, well, let's start with ourselves. What it tells us about ourselves is even when God shows up in the flesh, it does not make it easier for human beings to believe him. Do you ever just think, oh, if God would just reveal himself to me, I would never doubt again. It's not true. If God would do a miracle in my life, I've met people who have described in detail the miracles God has done for them, and then they have walked away from their faith. I have been there when God has done miracles for people, and they still didn't believe. I've never met someone who talked to God face to face, but Abraham did, and Gideon did, and they still struggled to believe. So that's what it tells us about us. What it tells us about God is that he is incredibly generous. God is so generous with us. He's so patient with us. God doesn't pounce on us when we struggle to believe. He comes alongside of us and helps us to believe. We often get the proof that we need. Has anyone ever had one of those fleece moments where you say, God, if you'll do this, then I'll trust that this X, Y, Z is true? Has anyone ever done that? Yeah, and a lot of times I hear these stories and you get your answer. You know, God gives you the proof you need. Time after time I've heard those stories. I've experienced it. But then we still struggle to believe the next time. But here's the thing. God is inviting us to trust in him 
And that's going to be the foundation for all the other trusts that we experience in life. I think this is a principle, a, a God principle. God wants you to trust in Him first and foremost, and that trust will be the foundation of all the other trusts that you experience in life. So if you are feeling anxious about all the, the choices, if you're feeling befuddled by all the information that you've got, first thing is to go back to the Lord and to put your trust in Him. Right? And the Lord is worthy of trust. In Hebrews chapter 6, talking about the exact same moment we read about earlier, it says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. Think about that for a moment. You know, God's down there. I swear to me. <laughs> I swear to me I'm going to do it. You know, I, I, there was this fun little video I watched where Jesus says, what in the name of me is going on here? You know, when there's no one greater to swear by, you have to swear by yourself. And that's what God does with Abraham. So he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. He made this covenant, right, with Abraham. So not only does God say it's true, I'm promising it, then he makes the covenant. Now, what's the point there? What is the point the author of Hebrews is trying to make? He's saying basically this. Look, we people have a hard time believing. We even have a hard time believing God. Even when we believe there is a God, we have a hard time believing what he says. How many times have you struggled to believe something that the Bible says or that God speaks to you in prayer? This is a, this is a complicated and challenging reality that we face it's hard to believe so what god does is he does two things to confirm it he makes a promise and he makes an oath god did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for god to lie when god speaks his promises he cannot lie and when he makes a covenant he cannot lie he cannot I had a professor who said there's three things God can't do. He can't die, he can't lie, and he can't deny himself. Well, this is right there in number two. God can't lie. He can't lie in his promises and he can't lie in his covenants. He did this so that we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Who are we who have fled to take hold of the hope? That's all of us. Any of us who have put our hope in Jesus Christ, any of us who have grabbed the hold of the truth of the gospel and the covenant that God has made through Jesus Christ, it's not just the covenant he made with Abraham. He did the same thing for us with Jesus. Jesus' own blood was spilled for that covenant. God's own blood was spilled for that covenant. God is saying, I cannot and will not go back on this promise. For you to have salvation, to have peace, to have power, to have every resource you need, not only for this life, but in the life to come. 
So we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. And he's alluding to the, um, uh, the temple, or he's actually alluding to the tabernacle the tabernacle that Moses created where the Holy of Holies resided and all the, the peace and forgiveness of God was distributed to his people Israel. So God is basically saying here to us, uh, you have a sure and firm hope. And hope here is not just, I hope it works out. Hope here is not, Oh, it'd be great if this happened. I hope it happens. This is not an internal feeling. This is an external hope that God has created and set as an anchor for our life. And really, our hope is Jesus Christ in the gospel. It is a firm foundation for everything else. So here are the sermon notes that Amanda was reading through the Holy Spirit's uh, leading and, and impression. What are the things in your life that are stealing your peace? What are the things in life making it hard for you to trust? What are the, the challenges you face that cause anxiety and worry? And then a follow-up question would be, how does trusting in Jesus help with any of those things? Because I think for a lot of us, it's one thing to say, trust the Lord. And it's another thing to say, well, what about all these messages that we get on TV about the election coming up? What about all these messages we get online about the coronavirus? What about, all the, what about schools opening up? I'm worried about my kids. Or if you're a kid, you're worried about yourself. Or maybe not for yourself, maybe for your parents, right? Maybe parents are worried that, that the education's not going to be good. Maybe, maybe you're worried about uh, a job, either because you don't have one or you don't like the one you have, but you're afraid to quit it and look for another one. And maybe the one you're in is not suitable for you to be with your family. I mean, I know some of you struggle to, to get to church because of your job. Uh, all sorts of things. To rest. I know some people who have struggled to wait for the right person to marry because they just need to be married or the right person to date because you just want to be dating. This whole thing, you know, with masks and vaccines, business closings, the economy, etc., everything related to the coronavirus. How do we how do we know about that? Of course there's politics, elections. What do we do about racial injustice? What do we do about seem like maybe attacks on our faith? What do we do about attacks on people we care about? Just where is the anxiety coming from? Maybe you have too much to do and you don't feel like you have enough time to do it. Maybe it's a relationship that's struggling. Maybe it's struggling now more than it was before because of all the tension and pressure and stress. You know, whatever it is, what are you anxious about? Now, if your future and your present and your past, if every part of you is 100% secure in the hands of God, it just 
puts a new perspective on every single challenge you face, every single anxiety you have. Because here's the thing. Anyone in the world can say, you know what, there's just too many things to deal with, so I'm just not going to worry about it. Anyone can do that. People do it all the time, whether they have hope in Jesus or not. But there's no way outside of Jesus that you can do that and then say, and I know everything ultimately is going to be okay. You can't know that. I mean, without God and without Jesus, if they don't exist, if God doesn't exist and Jesus doesn't exist, and there's not a God who has a good plan for us, and there's not a Jesus who's secure our future for us, then it could all get really bad and stay really bad forever, right? That could happen. But if God is real, and if his promises are true, then that really can't happen. So no matter what you're facing, A, you know it will end. That's the first thing. God says there's a future coming for you that's better than what you have right now. And I, I think for most of us, that looks like two things. Most of us are going to have a better future in this life than we have right now, but all of us in Christ are going to have a better eternity than we have right now. You know, Abraham's life had a lot of ups and downs. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, it says, Abraham died still looking for the promise, still looking for a home, still looking for a nation. But he knew that God was not just a God of the living, but he was a God of the dead too, and that Abraham would be, would be restored to life and he would receive the promise that God gave him. So if all else fails, you know that you've, your eternity is secure, and not only secure, but good. But then there's this second promise that we have in Jesus, because Jesus says, abide in me as I abide in you. And here's what that means. That word abide, we don't use very often, right? Um, do you know, the word abode is like a dwelling, like a house or, a, you know, some place where you live. Jesus is saying, live in me as I live in you. So the second sure promise, the thing we can trust on and trust in every single day is that no matter what we face, we'll never be doing it alone. We'll always be doing it with Jesus. So if that's the case, doesn't that take a lot of pressure off? So whatever anxieties and worries that you thought of today when we were asking you, when Amanda was inviting you, when the Holy Spirit was inviting you to, to reflect on those and then give them to the Lord, they don't necessarily vanish right away. The problems don't necessarily vanish right away, but your anxiety can because God reminds you that your future is secure and even now he's with you. You're not doing it alone. What is the worst problem you can face at work this week or at school this week? What's the worst challenge you could face in, in, a, in that setting this week? Is God big enough to handle that challenge? Of course. What's the worst challenge you could face relationally this week? Is God big enough to handle that challenge? Of course. What's the worst challenge our nation can face this week? Is God big enough to face and handle that challenge? 
I say, of course. Biggest medical challenge you're gonna, you could possibly face, God can handle. I mean, if God can handle you dying, he can handle anything else too. If God can handle a world that murders his son, he can handle racial conflict. If God can handle and just go down the list, there's nothing he can't handle. So if he's with you, there's nothing you won't be able to face. Nothing. Even if it kills you. And we don't like to think like that, but man, it's good to have that backstop. (laughs) You know, Lord, we pray that it goes great now, but if it doesn't, thank you so much that we know what's coming. So in a world comprised of lies and bias and sound bites that aren't true, when all this is going on around us, I think the first thing we do is, is we remember that God is calling us to trust in Him first. Trust in Him first. And then let that trust be the foundation for all the rest. Because here's the thing. You're going to get some of it wrong. Whatever diet you're on, next year someone's going to prove that that's a bad diet. You know, oh, eat eggs. Don't eat eggs. No, eat eggs. No, wait, don't eat eggs. Oh, wait, no, eat eggs. You're going to get it wrong. It's inevitable. Welcome to the world. But God is patient. He's generous. And our hope is secure. Our hope is secure. We're in God's hands. He's got us. You don't have to worry about that. So what I'd love to do is just kind of circle back. I I really, I think it's not a different message at all. It's the exact same thing the Holy Spirit was speaking through Amanda earlier. Reflect on what has you worried. Reflect on what's got you in a bind and twisted up. And invite the Lord to be your foundation in that worry, to bring his peace, to help you trust, to believe his words. So I'm not going to pray for you right now. I'm going to let you pray and go to the Lord with that.